0: Hi guys, my name is Molly Wistie and I'm a chainsaw carver coming to you from northern Minnesota. Uh, this is my new chainsaw carving podcast and if you haven't been with us before, this is actually our second podcast, so be f- sure to go ahead and check out the first one with Stephen Higgins. Um, a little bit about why I started the podcast, I really enjoyed kind of being in a rural area when the Ridgeway Rendezvous would put out those Great YouTube videos of you know carvers sharing their knowledge and information. And I also then realized there were no podcasts related to chainsaw carving. And I have been on some podcasts w- for being an art teacher, and I thought I would go ahead and give this a try. My goal is to highlight not myself, but highlight incredible carvers from all over the world. And today I'm actually going to be talking with Jeff Moore from Wisconsin. And Jeff Moore is also known as the Northwoods Carver. That's his website if you want to check it out, northwoodscarver.com. Jeff is an amazingly talented carver, and he's also a great thinker, which is why I'm really excited to talk with Jeff here today. So without further ado, let's go ahead and bring Jeff on. Hi, everybody. I have Jeff Moore here. Jeff, do you want to go ahead and say hello? Hello. Hello. So, Jeff, if you're cool with this, I'll just go ahead and start asking you some questions.
1: I'm cool with it. Sure.
0: <laughs> so, the first question I had for you is, um, I've heard a little bit kind of about your upbringing, and I was curious, how did your upbringing help get you to where you're at now?
1: Well, I was uh, I was uh, one of seven. Still am, thankfully. Um, and it, i guess you know we we had some you know we had some uh issues with our family just like a lot of families went back in the day uh parents got divorced and um one thing led to another my mom was never really around because she had to work so much cuz obviously it's a single parent family seven kids um and it was kind of a big deal um mm-hmm. for me as a kid, uh, because I had to preoccupy myself. And my brothers and sisters, you know, you know, they they had their own things and um it was everyone for themselves, but my oldest sister she had to kinda like hang on to the reins and reel everybody in and <clears throat> as well as my mom and you know, the older kids. But uh, my my brothers just couldn't wait to get out, obviously, and and I just looking back, it's it was uh it was kind of I'd be you know looking back, I it would be oh my gosh, I, I don't even know it was screwy, but it's you know it was the '70s, and uh, so I mean it everything was cool back then, and you know you just didn't even really <laughs> notice that well the light the power's out. So we'd build tents, you know, and um, with chairs and sheets and stuff. And then we'd like sleep in the tents with candles. My, you know, my sister would say we're going camping, you know, and I didn't know. Uh, I had no idea. Yeah. I thought she put out the power on purpose. And we would camp for a oh, couple sure. days or whatever it was. And it was cool. We, You know, we'd barbecue out on the grill and we'd just go camping inside the house. Or,
0: what a great sister. Well, yeah, or
1: <laughs> or she would just let us go spend a night at our friend's house because, you know, that there was no shame in the game back then because you got all them kids and stuff happens, you know, and you it's hard to keep up with mm-hmm. bills, and anybody who has kids nowadays, you know, there was, I guess, there was no credit card to just go, oh, just wipe your credit card, and turn your bills, turn your right. power back on. But so – there was a lot of that going on. So with that and all the stress, I decided, you know, I guess in my, without actually deciding, I just was compelled to start drawing and started at an early age all the way through high school. Um, and I kind of was a standout that way. But that was the only thing I stood out in, honestly. I, I was quiet, painfully shy. Um, thankfully, I've worked on that. <laughs> um <laughs> Came out the other side, still, you know, <laughs> I made it. Uh, I clumbed the mountain. So I took uh, later on in my uh, I think it was my freshman, the end of my freshman or junior or start of my junior year. They had a an artistic uh, but in art. I, I failed all my classes of art. I just was a horrible student. I was good at it. And I did great mm-hmm. stuff, you know, for my time, you know, for my age or whatever. So um, I would ditch all, you know, study halls and I would ditch gym and I would be, I'd hide myself away. This is a true story. I'd hide myself. There was like a, a closet in the in the back of the art class that had like all the clay and, all, you know, it was like a big, like a, I, I don't know, like a, I guess it's it's like a closet or, but it was like the size of a pretty good size walk-in closet. It had clay and paper, paints, everything back yeah. there. And I would, when the bell went off, I'd a couple times I can remember going back. Not I'm not saying every time, just a couple times I remember just saying I do not want to go to gym. I want to finish this pen and ink that I'm doing, and I would defy all the rules of logic and school rules as well um and just tucked myself away in that
0: you had everything yes in there. And,
1: and nobody bothered me nobody
0: mm-hmm.
1: um and then I'd slip out when the next class left you know and the teacher would see me walking out and he'd be like Where, what do you <laughs> and I just said have a good day and I just <laughs> trucked you know I was out of there <laughs> I did that a couple times uh, and then I got busted <laughs> and that's when they realized that I I was totally not um, one of those that you could put in a box, you know. Like we're mm-hmm. not going to teach you how to draw this vase with the grass sticking out of it, and maybe next to a crate and a raggedy end. That you know, the still life studies. I right. I took a little bit from it but my mind was just like going 240 miles an hour like I wanted to draw like fantasy and and I just didn't have the discipline so they they got together there was like four or five other kids in our school that they would consider gifted as it was a gifted arts program thing and uh they it was only for one year unfortunately but they brought in a college art uh Teacher from McHenry County College, <clears throat> which is the local college out there, and me and a few others were able. They they pulled us out of study halls. They just they they scheduled us so that our studies halls would back that were back to back, and then we'd just go in the art class. And I no way in hell had grades to support taking me out of two art classes, but they figured it was better than me ditching. and hiding out in the, you know, in the, in a stall in the bathroom or something, you know, to finish whatever. So they, they put me in there and I excelled in that class. I was able to, they would let you do anything you want, whether it be wax, Mm -hmm. uh, wax sculptures, you know, disappearing wax or whatever, or if I want to do clay or oils. um, And I was able to shake it up a bit and, and, Find out, discover new mediums, and and then we were graded on our performance by our classmates, mm-hmm. not just by the teacher. And and I, I aced it, you know. I aced every everything they threw at me. It, it was it was a blast, and I got to work with other inspiring people, and uh, who all went mm-hmm. on to be who are still amazing at what they do. Um, But uh, I think that because of the, the issues I had as a kid, it kind of locked me into my own little world. And that, I think that was critical in becoming who I am now, because I still have a tendency to lock out the rest of the world. And so I can focus on, listening to that little inner voice and that, and I listened to it then and I have to give my own, my own self credit where credit's due is I never stopped. I never did. I still do it. And it's uh, very, it's louder than ever now. You know, I, it, it, it helps me make my decisions and, uh, helps me move from point A to point B with very little, um, uh, about you know consequences and things like that because if the voice is telling me then i don't have to worry about it you know it's just like you know move here do this do that this is where you need to go right you know you ever go driving down a road and you don't know why you're going down that road and all of a sudden you see something that you hoped and dreamed you could get at some point whether it be a whatever four-wheeler it's for sale and it's like right in your price range it's like how
0: did that happen you know
1: that (laughs) or you just happen to go into a restaurant or something and you know it's just they have the best food it's like that times a thousand um just discover these new Mm -hmm. places but you'd never would have discovered it if you hadn't gone down that road but what told you to go down that road you know it's like there's no there's no mistakes uh when you do it that way. I mean, uh, this is a little story and that little voice I was telling you about, you can call it your conscience. You can call it God. You can call it whatever you want to call it, but it's powerful. And if you listen to it, it works so dynamically um, when you stop denying it. And it's like uh, one time my, my son, William was born. We were so poor. We mean, me and my wife were just we we were down to like our last two hundred and fifty dollars or something like that, and uh, rent was due, and you know all our bills were due, and this was this was a long time. Well, Will seventeen now, going on eighteen, and so it was he was right. a baby, you know, he was like pretty pretty newborn. He's like maybe four months old, six months old, I don't know. Um, and this was before I started mm. taking. My job very seriously. i had been carving for years, but it it was just like I was I wanted to party and I I didn't want to really settle down. But I found myself having to. And uh, so I thought, well, where's the money? Well, I go to Door County. So I loaded up a bunch of stuff in the back of my beat up F-250 and drove it to Door County. And when I got there, of course, it wasn't the tourist season. So there was hardly anybody there it was raining and it was crappy and nobody oh, no. was even out <laughs> and I'm driving around and I got nothing uh in my pockets it's, I had just enough for uh to to sleep in the CD hotel that was there it's not there even there anymore and uh mm-hmm. I found myself Going into, like, these supper clubs that were dead, you know, and I just loved the place, but there was nobody there, and I was hoping to score, and I just kind of gave it up. I'm like, whatever, I'm just going to – well, I'm here, and I have my fishing poles in my truck, of course, always, and I decided to go down this pier um, behind the Viking Cafe, like, over that – it's, like, right – um, I, I think it's an ephraim or it's not fish creek i think it was i don't i'm not sure exactly what town it was um uh, but or no ellison bay maybe i can't remember anyway there's this dock and there's super tall docks because it's the great lakes you know it's green bay and um, so i walked way out there probably a hundred yards 50 yards or 80 yards whatever it was down this Dock, and the wind is blowing the sky is gray and misting and I didn't even have any bait so I just grabbed this thing I thought might catch a fish and I just started casting into the wind and reeling it in just trying to keep it from getting snagged and uh, All of a sudden, you know, well, it was about 10 or 15 minutes, and I was just about to give up, and I saw a truck pull up behind my truck, my piece of crap Ford. And they were two guys, and I'm like, oh, crap. I'm too far away. If they took something, I don't know that I could reach them. You know, I didn't know what they were doing. So I, I, I reeled in as fast as I could. And I started, you know, walking extremely like a gruff old guy coming towards his truck. And I'm like, can I help you? You know, and they're like, how much for this stuff? And I'm like, well, what stuff? You know, which stuff are you interested in? And the guy's like, all of it. And I'm like, excuse me? He goes, yeah, how much for the whole? So I fake did my math, you know, and I just figured out what all my bills were worth and maybe a few extra bucks. And I told him and he's like, okay, we'll take it.
0: <laughs> I was alone. For fishing.
1: <laughs> I was alone. There was nobody there. There's nobody around. Nobody was even, I don't even know where these guys came from. They're two Polish guys and they had a beautiful home built on the, on the water and they just built the place and they wanted some cool stuff. And uh, wow. I was like, and so when I look back at that, the positioning and the faith that you have to have that it's profound, um, you know, what, when it's happening, when all that stuff's happening, it's, it's, a, it's it's so scary and so nightmarish. And then when you look back, it's all like a symphony, you know, it's like a, everything comes together and
0: sure.
1: you just, you just, if you're smart and you, you sit back and you can reflect on that, that um, helps you with the future because you're not really concerned about the future. Just look at your past. You were scared about your future back then, but look what happened. You're still here. You know, you're still doing it. Mm-hmm. And now everything's aces as long as you just shut your mouth and <laughs> and listen. You know, you just go with your – it's like going with your gut, I guess. But uh, that, mm-hmm. that, that story –
0: Yeah,
1: those stories are incredible. Yeah, that story is absolutely – factual and it's true down to the last detail and I remember coming home and making it rain you know for my wife she was in (laughs) bed she was sleeping and I pulled in and I just I don't know how much how many much money I had on me but I just just let it rain all over her and the baby
0: just yeah
1: she was you know, she goes, I don't know how you do that. Cause that's not the first time, you know, <laughs> I've taken our last dollar and, and just gone out and done something and brought home the bacon. But that's when I started, you know, realizing, you know, I didn't even read this is probably 78 years ago. I put things two and two together and yeah. So having mm-hmm. that, like you said, going back to the initial question, it's uh, I think it has a lot to do with the way you grow up.
0: Okay. So a little bit more kind of growing up in Illinois. Um, I know you've talked about that. The expectation was kind of college marriage and then getting a good steady job. Um, what gave you the courage to step away from that or not do that when everybody else was.
1: Um Honestly, I think I was just stupid, <laughs> ignorant. Uh, honest, this is my dead honest opinion. I think I was, there is no, there was no arrogance. It was just simply that I didn't feel like doing what everyone else did. That I just, it, it repulsed me. Yeah. Not, not, it's not that I didn't want to do it. I wished I could have. I wished I could have got, you know, all my diploma and I wish I could have you know, done a lot of things. I wished I could have, but it w- I was so compelled to do something completely different at the time. I, I didn't even, it wasn't even an option. I I, I, I couldn't, it's sort of like working the job that repulse, like say you're a vegetarian and you work in a place that slaughters pigs. That's exactly how i felt yeah when someone said get a get a job doing this doing that the closest thing that i felt it was landscaping i really liked it but it was it was just it was tedium after a while and then and then uh and i just didn't feel like i had a purpose but i was at least getting my fingers dirty in the dirt you know and planting things and yeah um i worked in a, as a foreman at a at a landscaping place couple of them. And then I worked as a in the tree service. I worked in cart you know, carpentry and concrete and roofing and I you know, anything a kid a pizza cook that lasted about four days. Um <laughs> I actually had one job working where they did a quilting thing. Um it was a quilting company. They made quilts. It was this massive huh. massive sewing machines that were like 30 feet long and they would like put the material through and then it would have like, it was all sewing needles. Huh. So it would make these huge sheets of, and then they'd cut it and make quilts and stuff. And uh, I walked in the front door, set out, you know, and they were going to show me what I was be doing and what I had to watch. And I'm looking at all these bobbins and all these needles and all these little billions of little sewing machine parts. And I had to, And it was like, walking into hell and I just I'm I'm serious I got a drop I got dropped off it was about 10 miles from home 15 miles from home I got dropped off by my mother and she was all for me getting a job right and then when I was done she said she would come get me or I could just walk home it's not that far you know yeah so I was I walked in the door I I stayed there and the, I watched the lady and it, <laughs> I feel so bad. She she said, "Okay, I'll be in the office if you have any questions or whatever. This is what you got to watch out for. And if something happens, you just pull this and everything will stop and then we'll, you know, I'll show you how what's next." And I just looked and she walked away and about 5 minutes later I walked out the back door and walked home. <laughs> wow i I was so overwhelmed um the best thing about it was i think the I felt a little bit more um what's the word I'm looking for like a normal person when I got a job at the tree service because I had chainsaws i had I had a lot of muscle and strength and intensity back then, and I was able to just focus it and go at the trees and learn how to tie knots and how to run the equipment. And I felt like I was somebody. Yeah. Something, something that I'd been missing and found, uh, you know, like I was at least a productive member of society, just like I didn't work at a bank and I wasn't, you know, a doctor or a lawyer, but I was at least at the end of the day, I could say I, I freaking did something with my hands, you know, all those mm-hmm. days in the gym lifting weights and all that. Now I have a purpose for it. I wasn't just trying to look cool and pick up chicks, you know. Um, yeah. Well, you would never know it now by looking. At <laughs> but back in the day, I was quite the quite the stud. But it was very um, eye opening. I was. I learned. It was like. I, and if you look further back, like the the Lake the Green Bay fishing story going back to this is I was led to the tree service by a weird coincidence. I learned everything I needed to know about saws and sharpening and safety and all the different wood species and what it's like to cut them in the winter and the summer and the fall. And I did that and I learned about sales. I learned about uh, imagery, you know, for the company and and, and having a work ethic and enduring the heat and the cold. And, uh, which is something you have to have in this business. You have to have that or you're just not going to make it. And mm-hmm. so I learned all that stuff. And then one day I was on a tree job and I saw this guy sitting in a tree or sitting in a chair. And, uh, he was, he was, the most interesting man in the world. I think I told this story before if you haven't heard it, but he was a Greek guy and he was totally tan with white hair and he had a red bandana around his neck. I swear to God. And he had, (laughs) he had like snakeskin boots, jean shirt, jean pants. They matched. And he had a like this kick butt belt buckle. And, uh, (laughs) He he looked like a saddle. His face was like really, you know, brown, leathery, and he had a thick Greek accent. Um, I didn't and you find found this out this till later.
0: Character there. in Illinois.
1: Yeah, I was just right four doors <laughs> down from where I was working, uh, taking a okay. tree down. I was compelled, and my boss comes over. You know, I just was finishing up this job, and he comes over to me and he says, "Hey, Jeff, you got to go over there where that dude's sitting," and. He, I go, why is he staring at those trees? It was like this lady, this it was like this old guy staring at the trees and the lady brought him out cookies and like lemonade. <laughs> and I thought if she was just like bringing grandpa out for a son, you know, just,
0: <laughs> I swear.
1: <laughs> and uh, I couldn't understand it. And he, I said, what, what's going on? He goes, yeah, you got to cut them down to a certain height. And I'm like, oh, that's going to be fun, you know. And just thinking to myself, this is really a, surreal and uh he's gonna carve them i'm like carve them what, what like chisels he's like no with a chainsaw And i'm like what okay yeah. and so putting two and two together you can kind of see where i'm going with this and yeah. everything happens for a reason what are the chances know you know
0: right he it's was incredible the, how you can look back and everything lines up like yes. you said but What's happening to you, you have no idea.
1: It's it's chaos. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. But in order to honestly move ahead, you have to look back. It's a reference. Like they say, you know, the windshield is where you need to look. But you got to have – you can't look back all the time. That's why they say the, the, the rearview mirror is much smaller than the windshield. It's just there for reference. And you mm-hmm. have to pay attention to what you've, where you've been. And, and then, you know, it's just like a glance here and there. You don't sit there and look at your rearview mirror. Otherwise, you'll crash into everything. You're just not going anywhere. And mm-hmm. so you're moving forward. That's the only way you can move forward. You can't move forward if you're looking backward. You know, that's just silly. Um, but yeah. you have to honestly take a look into that part of yourself and your history and says okay what led up to this what's my story and if you don't pay attention or if you block it all out sometimes those really hard things are the the things that actually define you and if you look back and without getting upset and try to string things together like popcorn you know just put them on a thread and just okay i remember that memory and you start You know, maybe you only have a couple kernels on the string at first, you know? Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Unfortunately, my phone is doing that sound. Can you hear it?
0: No, I actually can't. Good.
1: Excellent. Um, (laughs) What an interruption on my end. But uh, so at first you might just have a couple pieces of popcorn on the thread, and you might have an awful long thread. But eventually you'll have more and more and more, and pretty soon you'll be able to decorate the whole tree um right it's a bad you know analogy but I don't <laughs> know I, I, <laughs> we uh, it's it. a reference or whatever you want to call it I, I I uh a metaphor I speak in metaphors it's the only way I know how to communicate so sorry
0: <laughs> no that's fine um so um another thing I was going to ask you I know you have other art forms in your past like your ink drawings and then also archery yeah how have those influenced your carving
1: oh wow well those almost have to come separately but not really they're they're both linked like i said i sat up and just thought about what how things were linking in my life and so the pen and ink thing it requires discipline because when i started dis- when i started pen and ink there was they had pen and ink, pen and ink, but I had, you know, like where you could just, there was no fountain, but I started old school with the quill and dipping the pen and having just the right amount of ink, not too much, not too little. Cause you'd get a blob or you'd get, you know, you had to, it was a, it was a old school. Um, and I okay. did all of my artwork that way. And my friends thought I was nuts because all you got to do is put your hand in a little wet wedding, you know, goodbye, goodbye <laughs> artwork. Um,
0: but uh-huh. I did it,
1: and I did it for years and years, and I I just loved it. I just loved the fact that I could take this blank piece of paper and add one line, and then it put a little line right next to it, and then six hours later, it was something look borderline masterful. It was, it, and it really wasn't masterful if you look at a lot of other works, but... Because of the fact it came directly out of my head, it was freaky cool. You know, it was weird. And I don't even know what I was doing. But all I knew is I was getting my pen strokes down. And I was able to create, you know, all kinds of unique things. You know, human anatomy studies. And then I would put like a surrealistic thing to it, you know, where there were scales and, you know. Roots and stuff like I remember doing an old man with his hands tied behind his back and all his muscles and everything and then it went down and and he was rooted down to the ground and he looked like, you know, he was in he was grimacing in pain or whatever. I have no idea why I I did these things. I remember I won a contest once where they said it, it, it was a surrealism class. We had to do some like crazy stuff. Um, but you know, people were pretty doing pretty straightforward stuff and I wanted to do this fly trap, but a series of them, like three of them in a piece of paper, big piece of paper. And I had like fly traps in the desert. It was all color pencil. And there was like weird enough. There was like k- candy canes, like sticking up at weird angles out in the desert. And, And then I had uh, helicopters flying into these fly traps, but they—I added—I made the helicopter look like a, um, like a surrealistic version of a helicopter, but it looked like a dragonfly, because kind of you know the old style helicopters with the bulbous heads and the long bodies. Right. I, I just made it look like. You know, I even did the like the army green and it was like flying it sideways into the into the Venus fly traps, you know, and there was like it was just this really weird thing because it was like a bug like thing. And I just thought, how cool is that? Yeah. Uh, I don't know the metaphor, about but it was just an interesting thing to look at. And um, so I was able to pull off all these weird concepts and, you know, I just started unlocking doors in my head. Um, But the discipline that came from that and the natural whatever it was inside my head, I was able to take that. And like, so it was like anything I did. Those ink patterns were like just, you know, embossed in my brain. And they still are. And so. There, uh, So when it came to the archery aspect later in life, I mean, I took up archery later. Like I was, geez, I was probably 39, 38, 39, 40, somewhere in there when I picked it up. And became obsessed with it. And I think us, you know, artists, our artistic people, we become obsessed with things and we can't put them down until we master them. You know, it's like until we feel like We've run that road as far as it'll go and um, until it fades off into nothing. Um, it could take you to great heights or, you know, it could just be a lesson. And so sure. I, after looking back at my archery career, I, that was a lesson to me. That was, that was uh, you know, I think all of us carvers are egotistical. Um, we all are. You almost have to be. You have to think that you're the bomb, or at some point you're gonna be the bomb, and so you wear that that yeah, armor, you know, just so you can get through um, big projects and stuff. You gotta think, oh yeah, this is gonna be great. We tell everyone sees this, <laughs> and I still feel the same <laughs> way, and, and I still have to feel that way. But archery humbled me in a way that is more profound. Than anything ever. Um, other than this one ice ice carving event I did, it's the only ice time I've ever carved ice, and I was I basically had my ass handed to me. I thought I was hot stuff, you know. I was this wood carver coming, oh yeah. And I was in my, I was in my own head. I was this like big, you know, this megastar <laughs> because I made a lot of money back then just be sucking at it but yeah. i sold myself i guess and i was able to do it and uh with that came all the spoils and uh there was it was a, an event in appleton wisconsin at houdini plaza and i carved with some of the best ice carvers in the country and uh i was just like a nobody and i brought gas powered tools and they, they said you can't can't run that you got bar oil you can't run that so everybody kind of just like in the carving community today they they all dipped into their tool bags and borrowed me the stuff I needed to get through the so it was a nightmare but anyway I got my ass so handed to me I was so devastated and it felt I felt numb like your first love just left you know I was just like oh no I'm not that guy and then I finally said, well, I'm never doing <laughs> that again. <laughs> and I haven't. But uh, but the same thing happens in wood carving. You know, that was devastating to my ego. It deflated me, and it, and that helped me in the long run, it, even though it hurt like hell. Because um, it put things in perspective yeah. like, hey, you know, you might be on the right track, but, hey, let's not get this, you know, let's not, you know, being a rookie, rookies always have a tendency and I've seen it across the board for years. Uh, they dive deep. They want to get super involved. You know, they, they overstep their bounds a lot of times and they have a tendency to be, you know, overzealous and cocky and, and, uh, full of themselves and, and it's perfectly normal. And it's, you know, that's, I was the same way. So, uh, But you have to realize what Mm -hmm. your own limitations are. And and sometimes it's uh, serendipity (laughs) that that opens your eyes. Like, you just happen to be at this place, and this dude is just sick, awesome, and you are, like, not even remotely close, and you thought you were at the top of the food chain. And so I I feel that way when I watch a lot of carvers carve. Even still today, I'm just like, man, there's no way. I could do that. You know, But then I, that little voice comes in and says, you don't have to do yeah. that. You just have to do you, you know, you just do you, <laughs> you know, maybe they can't do what you can do. And then I was right. like, Oh yeah. All right. Well, I still couldn't do it. Let's do it. Uh, you know, and I just, so I just have to back support myself, um, in a positive way and not in a ego centric way, you know, like the, um, so getting back to archery that that's when I also learned, cause I thought, you know, after shooting for a while, I'm like, man, I can hit anything. I can, until I went and saw what real archers do and how they do it and the absence yeah. of ego, um, while shooting, even though these guys were egomaniacs, somehow it, it was not there when they were shooting, they were able to, do something inside their selves that would stop that. They had a process that I needed to learn. Yeah. And um, that was was like a fulfilling thing because it took me years and years to learn it. And I had to decommission all those parts of my brain, just like, nope, sorry, you're no longer (laughs) – you know, it's like when they go through the army and they're like, Well, those tanks are no longer, you know, they're used. We're not gonna use them anymore. We're decommissioning those old helicopters and that tank and that ship and you know, it's like, what? That's that was my whole armada, you know? Too bad. You don't need all those defenses. Right. They suck anyways. There's other <laughs> missiles that'll take take them right out, you know, and that's my mentality. And I thought, well, jeez, okay, so I have to start from scratch and um I learned so much about uh, philosophy and things like that because I had to read up. I've been right into Japanese uh, Kyoto uh, methods and, okay, how can I incorporate that kind of almost meditation-like archery as opposed to, you know, to to free myself of that ego where I wanted to nail the trigger and just, you know, it was – crazy and i was introduced to something called a hinge which has no trigger and it's a form type of release where it releases the arrow but by how your form dictates it so you have no idea when the thing's going to go off all your job is to do is shut up and aim just aim
0: oh wow that would be tough yes they're not
1: and but you're 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 relying on the process that you've that you've mastered for that release. Mm -hmm. So if you rely on your process, you don't have to worry about when it goes off. You just have to concern yourself about where it, where the arrow lands without giving a crap. Like you're invested, but not too much. You know what I mean? So you're not gonna over Mm -hmm. you're not gonna exaggerate anything, you're not gonna anticipate the release. You just don't care if it when it releases or if it releases. If you get tired, you'll just let up. And Mm -hmm. so like in the middle of a tournament, I was more concerned about the future of my game instead of my score. And that's when I knew I had done something right, because like you have three minutes to shoot five arrows and if that fifth arrow you know the time is you're taking your time you don't really care who's looking it's another thing you gotta you don't care who's looking you just got to follow your process and then like that time would tick 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 get down to the very last three seconds and if my arrow had not left or if it didn't leave You know, it was hard to train yourself. I mean, I had to take the words of other people. I was listening to the voice of the guy that was kind of helping me out and was my mentor. Don't shoot a shot, you know, if it doesn't feel right. If there's something that doesn't feel right, let up, because you're just going to reinforce that. And the next time it doesn't feel right, you're going to release that arrow as well. So you're just going to form bad form after bad form after bad form. If you have a good, positive image of your last shot, it will reinforce the next shot. You can't just start mixing it up. So.
0: Sure, and being able to think long term like yes, that, rather than being
1: yes, to be able to say, sighting, "Hey, I'm not going to, I'm not going to release this arrow prematurely." Or if something is wrong with the shot, even just because the buzzer's about to go off, I mean, you're there to learn a lesson and not necessarily score a score. And I think most people learn more lessons from archery than anything. I mean, yeah. because it is a, it's just you 95% mental and, you know, 5% or 90% mental and 10% physical. Um, so, I mean, it's uh, to just say to yourself, mm-hmm. I'm not going to shoot this shot. And the ego in you is like, no, and you're like, shut up. I'm not going to, you know, I don't care. I'm not going to let you ruin my career, you know, because I wanted a career. I wanted to be a pro, but I, I just, you know, like a right. circuit pro, like the guy that would travel all over the country. And and I just – you have to be really selfish to do that because, you know, I have little kids and, you know, you, there's a part of you and, and somebody has to pay you to do it, and nobody was going to pay me to do it. So I just – you know, even though I had sponsors, I, it was just – I I thought that after a certain point I learned what I needed to learn. And it was just something I was brought to it. I was brought through it and I'm better for it. And I've learned a lot, you know, and I still love to shoot, but, but that thing where, you know, you don't have to hit, if you don't, if it doesn't feel right, don't release the arrow because you're not going to like the outcome Just be you know? Um, And so the buzzer goes off and you're, you don't get a score for that and it drops you down into the next category or the next flight down and scoring and so you know you maybe you didn't score your average and who cares your ego is the thing that cares you you shouldn't care you know and for those carvers out there that don't practice um they shouldn't be upset if they go into a competition and you know just do horribly or they try something it's like well how many times have you done it how many times have you – did you practice it? Did you study it? Did you mm-hmm. did you beat your knuckles bloody on it for 10 years before this? Because if you didn't, you shouldn't be upset with the outcome. You know, it's – you know, you, you can't be upset with something like right. that. And that's, that's what that taught me. And uh, also focusing on what you do wrong. Another wise thing a buddy of mine, Tony, told me, said – we were shooting, and we we're just repetitively bang bang, bang, and I'd miss, miss, miss. And I was so frustrated, and then I'd take a breath and I'd shoot and I'd hit dead center, and he'd and I'd be like, "Oh, I think I figured it out." I think I, he said he'd just laugh. You know, he's like, "You think you figured it out?" And I'm like, ah, "I think I know why I'm missing. I think I know why I'm missing." And he just laughed. And I, at the end of the day, he's like, "You know what? If you focus on what you're doing to miss the target," then you're going to become a master of missing. And it hit me like I had to, I was just programmed for the negativity and a, um, a change at that point I had to start. I knew that was my next quest in archery. I had to reprogram going from a negative place to a positive place. Like what about that shot felt good? Did it, Was I steady? You know, was what was, and then I just focus on that, and I wouldn't worry about the arrow or where it landed. It didn't matter. I just I wanted to execute clean shots that felt right, because eventually, when you do that enough, the scores will come, and that and they did. You know, I never was, you know, some kind of fantastic, awesome, incredible archer like you see on TV or something, Um, but I wasn't bad. I was pretty good, and, you know, sometimes I was better than pretty good, but those days came and went, and I had to accept that. So so that aspect brought into my, you know, you know yeah. the pen and ink discipline, conquering the ego, moving forward with the um, archery, learning those, because those archery lessons helped me in life, not just in the business, but You know, I still have a lot to learn in both, but as far as without archery, I think I would be miles behind right now, honestly.
0: So, um, I have another question. So as, as I'm hearing your talk and I know that other people are probably picking up on this too, you, you're very philosophical and you like to consider, ponder, like think about things. Um, how does that influence both your life and your art?
1: Well... Good question, Molly. Um, so good, I might not even have an answer. Um,
0: <laughs> That's all right.
1: Let me check my philosophical uh, rolodex. Uh, <laughs> I actually, I think, you know, life is about experiences, and if you can like become more fluid, and it's and I'm going to use an archery um, metaphor. When you first learn to do, like we're gonna we're gonna take carving and we're gonna take archery and we're just gonna put those two right together. If you're a newbie and you're just learning how to use a saw safely, if you're just learning the safety part of it, uh, what to wear, um, those are steps in the in the shot. We're gonna we're gonna consider the finished product as the shot, the release, and the impact. And then later it will be the reflection. Because after every shot, the shot is not completed until the arrow reaches its target and you hear the thud of the arrow. Then the shot is complete. Then you reflect on the shot so that you have a positive mental image for the next shot. It's still fresh in your head. It's critical that you do this. Now, if you're just learning it, you have to either archery or carving, you still have to follow certain steps, right? So you start off with your breathing. You start your breathing. You know, there's different – you can put your steps – and it's awesome because you can do it any way you want as long as you do it. And you follow those steps in the same pattern. So you start off with your breathing. You can then look down at the floor and put your, your footwork, do your footwork. Continue breathing. You know, you, you settle your grip, you grab your arrow, you, you know, knock the arrow, you look downrange, you clear your mind, you, you just keep breathing, you focus on your breathing and then you just, you're empty inside and then you draw your bow, you settle and then you go blank and you just use, you can feel all the little muscles in your your back start to compress and the, you know, you, once you come to your anchor and everything, you can feel everything. Your rhomboids are pulling your el- your shoulder and your, your elbow back. Your hand is loose. And the shot goes off. And all you're doing during this meantime is you're just focusing on where, you know, where the, you're just trying to put the pin in the middle. You don't really care about the rest of it. And it takes years and years and years to do it, where you can separate The wall you know effectively so each step in this initially you have to like think about that every step is like critical and so you're thinking about them as individual steps but as you do it the more you do it those steps begin to blend and pretty soon you Mm -hmm. can just walk up to the line you're already breathing you're already you're you're advanced You know, you can be a little bit more aggressive because now everything is so automatic for you. You can put all those lessons and they come together in this wonderful, swirling uh, symphony inside your brain. Like, you know exactly what to do. You feel a certain way. You feel unstoppable. You feel, you know, not dead inside, but like calm. There's a certain calm where you just reach this calm where you are like one cool cucumber you know what i mean um
0: yeah
1: so there's a stillness and a calmness and then you'll hold your bow much more calm and steadier and the release will come nice and fluently and this you know and if you miss you don't even care because you're not thinking about the one you let go i mean you're thinking about the one that's next the next arrow is the one that counts until after you shoot that one you're you're concerned with it, but you're not worried about it. You know what I mean? You're just you're just showing some concern. You're not really focusing. It's like oh, that's too bad. You know, grab another arrow. It's not like what? Oh, you know, there's no rage inside of you. You just it's a it's a point. Think about how many arrows you're going to shoot for the rest of your life. You know, millions probably if you're into it. So I look at that same way as carving when you first start off you have to do steps you have to learn the basics with the tools and you you're not even connected to your artistic ability just yet because you have no idea how the tools work you know what i mean and so it takes some saddle time i'm sure you're experiencing it you know where you just don't feel like your art is coming across the way you want it to right because you yep yeah, 100%. you're you're not you're not feeling it. You know, it's you're close. And it takes a long time before your artistic ability catches up with your mechanical skill and your muscle memory and all that crap, you know, and you have to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Figure out ways to do it. And I think that's the key is you know, looking back on all of those things, you have to like put those it takes a while before they all become fluent, you know fluid um, where you can point and shoot with fluidity mm-hmm. and hit the mark and that's that's you know I still work on that every day.
0: Well, great answer <laughs> uh, so um, <laughs> next thing I'm gonna ask you, talent. Hard work or both?
1: (laughs) Oh, you're going to make me step in it. (laughs) Wow. Okay. Well, judging from the conversation we've already had, I think I'm going to throw in a third. And I'm going to say destiny. Like talent, hard work or both. Okay. I believe you need both one or the other works but if you don't have hard work talent doesn't mean squat eventually if you're hard working the things that you are compelled to you know maybe you're not maybe you're not artistically compelled maybe you're just compelled because you want to feel that sense and i think it eventually it finds you you've you'll you want to link yourself with others who are great or with other people that are great at what they do. And by being in proximity to those people learning, you will put together a set of tools through hard work that allows you to excel and exceed your dreams or your possibilities that you ever thought you could, you know, do. So Mm -hmm. with that being said, I think, if you have the talent, you know, without talent, I mean, there are just people that are just blessed. They're, they're, the other word is talented, whatever you want to call it. Look at Mozart. You know, he's five years old. He writes his first concerto. <laughs> That's ridiculous. To right. know music where you can write music at five. I couldn't even, I was eating mud at five years old. You know?
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm not thinking that was no. hard work at five.
1: No, I was like a chimp. In this, in the zoo, throwing poop at people—that was me. I I, 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 Maybe I was starting to draw with the poop on the wall um, or something. But, but that was me. <laughs> he was our. He already understood music to the point where he could write a concerto. I mean, that is. How do you explain that? You know, that's exceptional. And there's are exceptional people everywhere you look. To be able to pull something from nothing to learn it to a degree, I mean intelligence on a 5-year-old kid that can do that. He could do anything. If his if his if he was his father was a bricklayer or you know somebody who did calligraphy or whatever, he would have been a master at that as well. But I mean to have so talent does it exist oh, without question? It's just how much and how hard are you willing to work to do it, you know, to, to see the pinnacle of your talent? How far can you push it? You know, how hard are you willing to work? Because people that are talented, if they work really hard, um, it's, there's no, there's no end to, and, and some people are talented but there's a there's an end um, to it. I feel like I have talent, but I feel like there's an end to it. Like I, it would take me a hundred years to get where I want to go. You know what I mean? I'm not. I'm. I feel like I'm just now starting to hit my stride at. You know, after almost thirty years in the business or doing this. Forget forget the business. Thirty years yeah. uh, or more than that, as as an artist, but thirty years of almost 30 as a carver. So I feel like I wasted 20 of it. And really the eight years that I've really Mm -hmm. come into my own a little bit is, is just scratching the surface because I didn't take myself seriously for the first 20 years, honestly. I mean, I did, but not, not like I do now. I mean, Mm -hmm. I'm more comfortable, um, because I have all those experiences behind me. Did that answer your question? I'm not sure.
0: No, it, yeah, it definitely did. Okay. Um. So this is a little bit lighter. Sure. <laughs> you're, no, you're known um, in part for your lamination process. Could you talk a little bit about that?
1: Mm, I could, but then I'd have to kill you.
0: <laughs> oh, man.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm fresh out of bullets, but I do have a few arrows laying around. <laughs> you just have to stand at 20 yards and hold still. <laughs> Good um, thing I'm far away. Yeah, right. Uh, no, I mean, lamination is basic, as is many things. It's just a matter of, you know, like any, any carving, any art project, anything you do in life is basic basic it just depends on how much you what do you want out of it you know um you could take two pieces two two by fours and make a you know a, a thicker board uh you can glue things different ways sideways just to make a bigger version of it itself so you can have a you know a standard dried something that's not going to come apart in time, you know, because of weather and, you know, moisture issues. So, I mean, it's just a basic thing gluing boards together and then using whatever artistic ability you have and the tools available to carve whatever it is that you want to do. And mm-hmm. so it depends on how ambitious you are. If you're really ambitious, You'll figure out the anatomy of the thing that you want to do because if you're going to laminate something, it's a it's a labor-intensive job and it's it's expensive to do it. You got to buy yeah. the wood, um, kiln dried, if unless you got access to it. And then you got to get all the, the epoxies or the gorilla glue, and that's you know that's not cheap either. It's a dollar an ounce um, or more. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you think about it that way. Why would you waste your time? just banging out another carving, a thing, on something that deserves obviously more because you've got more invested in it to begin with. Do something cool. Do something special. Take your time. Do a little research. You know, that's just the way. That's my mentality. It's not everybody's mentality. That's just mine, and that's just because it's developed that way over the years. You know, I I like to... I don't know. I think it might be genetic. I think my grandfather was a, I don't think, I I know he was a machinist and he owned his own company and he was a a bit anal with with details and that's the kind of guy you want to have building your stuff. You know? Yeah. You know, I think uh, integrity is the mother of quality. You know, and I think if you have integrity in in the stuff that you choose, the all the way down to the tools you use, um, you know, the wood that you pick, the the you know, and how you put things together will you'll have quality in the end and it makes you know, it makes for uh easy sleeping. You know, at the end of the day, when you're done, you know you put it all in, it's got the best of materials. You gave it your all and you left nothing in the ring, you know, you just so that's where I that's my mentality is just a, a whole total quality approach where you know it's it, when the customer comes and gets it or you deliver it and I like to take pictures of the process sometimes you know and just show them what's involved and they're just like standing there with their mouths open like what oh my gosh, you had to do that <laughs> Right. Yeah, that's the that's just, that's what I had to do before mm-hmm. I started carving. You know, it's like, my gosh, like the mm-hmm. white-tailed deer fight, I had to do that one twice. Yeah, wow. somebody dropped a tree. I'm not going to name names, but someone dropped a tree on the ones that were there and smashed them. Oh, yeah, God. the original oh, set got destroyed. <laughs> so, I ended up the insurance company paid me to 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 create two new ones and um go to my website you'll see the old set is on like the first page you know my initial I don't know what you call it the
0: the home page and then
1: yeah and then you go to the gallery and you'll see the new ones that are totally different updated version but um, yeah but I mean it's just the, the lamination process can be as easy or difficult just like anything else you know carving a bear can be easy or it can be time intensive and, you know, labor intensive and just, you know, it can be as hard or as difficult as you choose it to be, you know, basic stuff. The thing I like about it is, you know, like people like Chris Foltz, like um, kind of pioneered the the slabbing of the, of the log at a competition or whatever and just kind of going crazy with it. Basically, yeah. that's. La- that's not basic that is lamination it's laminating stuff together and creating this this thing that uh exceeds the shape of the tubular trunk which is makes it more dynamic yeah um so that is the key to make something just explosive to look at and that's what i love about lamination all and, and the cool thing is is you're not dealing with if you carve something out of a whole log you're dealing with cross grain and all kinds of weird stuff where like if you try to do a bear's paws like sitting out in front of it the the grain's going across the wrists so when that wood dries the wrist is doomed you know Mm -hmm. so what i'll do is i'll just cut it back to the forearm or whatever and then i'll just add the paws not because they didn't look good but because the direction of the grain is wrong yeah. For any kind of longevity, so I do. That's something I do it with the ears. Sometimes I'll even do it with the snout. I'll do it wherever I feel it necessary. If I got legs sticking out like the sitting bear I just finished, I'll cut flat spots on the trunk to come out past the tree trunk so that it it it's it doesn't look so cylindrical, you know. Mm-hmm. Like clearly it was put carved into the log where. Now we've broken the plane, the exterior plane, and it's more fun to look at.
0: Sure. I will say, too, when, as a newer carver, um, just the knowledge that I can cut an ear off or cut a hand off and put it back <laughs> is a huge piece of mind, right? Sure. I'll, I'll sure. never forget when I first figured out. That you know, oops, I accidentally cut into this and you could just replace it.
1: <laughs> yes, yes, just you know what? Hopefully, you're using your head when you put the thing on so the grain's going the right way. But, right, yeah, <laughs> I've been you know, it's funny because Chris Foltz does it to the like to the max, and there's a lot of other guys out there now that are following suit. But like 25 years ago, I was doing it and not even realizing what I was doing right that i you know because oh my gosh you know this arm it's got some rot in it uh so i just cut the arm off and put a different arm on and i didn't even mm-hmm. have i didn't have a, i didn't even know what the name was a lot of times i would just lag it i would just not even use glue and lag mm-hmm. it and if there was a gap i'd shim it but that was just a ignorance you know the lagging i'll still do um but I usually put some sort of a, like a. I usually use Gorilla glue because if there's any little gap, it'll help foam up in the gap and keep the moisture out. But you know, mm-hmm. hopefully there is no gaps, and that's what I kind of strive for. But that's that's right. that's my take on that um, lamination. Uh, I think everyone should give it a shot. I think it's the future of my business. I don't think so. I know so because it's it's more expensive and it's 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 for people that are more uh, I guess that are more quality orientated there's nothing wrong with chainsaw carving or you know but I think by by default it's a sketchy. Um, you know, proposition because there's always going to be issues with the logs. They're always going to split you know, you're going to get a call back. You're going to, you know, and people are going to be upset. And it's just like, you know what, I don't even want to deal with one of those people and, and mm-hmm. you know, in a perfect world. And right. I just think strive for it. And, and if we can, if I can somehow do right now, I'd say about 65, of my work is lamination and it's because I positioned myself over the years to build up a clientele that can afford that kind of luxury. And, uh, you know, hopefully it can continue.
0: Yeah. I will say it's been kind of interesting. Um, kind of just as a hobby on the side, but my husband builds wood furniture And that's been interesting as I'm carving and he's like giving his take. And I, and I kind of think we can incorporate a lot of stuff from more of like a furniture building when it comes to like attaching yeah. and, and things like that. So it's been great having his advice because he, he makes some cleaner joints being a furniture builder.
1: Oh, yeah. He has a, a you know, there's, there's a, I got a couple of Canadian buddies that are excellent furniture builders and they, they can do, they do some really cool joints when they do their carvings where they don't need yeah. a lag, They don't need, they almost don't even need a pin to go through it. And if they do, they'll make their own, you know, it's, it's just like, wow, how cool is that? These right. guys that really have that him. understanding is, is a pretty impressive.
0: hmm. Definitely. Okay. So I've, I've heard you say this before, Mm -hmm. um, your work has a lot to do with who you are and what you're like Mm -hmm. and about the difference. I've heard you talk about the difference in creating art or just creating an object. Would you talk a little bit about that?
1: Well, we'll do the art and object thing. Um, some people would define loosely art to be anything someone creates or whatever, and I guess they're right. You know, there's there's different ways to look at it. And I don't have an elitist opinion. I what I do have is a an opinion, though. Uh, you can call it whatever you want. Um, but in this business, you know, depending on your story and uh, or the kind of popcorn kernels, and you know how many you strung across your little thread there. Yeah, you decide. For yourself, what is art and what is not? And in, in my opinion, uh, from my background, I don't have an impressive artistic background. I didn't go to college for it. You know, I never, I never really, you know, pursued that. Um, there's a lot of artists today uh, I can think of that have degrees in art, and there's so much better mm-hmm. for it. There's so much fun to talk to because they can put to words what I'm thinking. I can't do it because I don't have that education. But they have; they know exactly, you know, what I'm what I'm thinking. But they can put it into terms that, oh, that they actually have a term for what I'm thinking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you crazy? Uh, no, they they just they have they have that um, education. Um, but uh, and and it, it makes them better for it. You know, they have. It, it's just more steps that they've learned that I didn't and that they could add into their, you know, fluidity over time. And so now I, you know, have this, this, this thing when it comes to art and to objects, you know, you can tell art from an object instantly you know, if someone's just carving a thing, it doesn't have any motion. There's no emotion. It's an object for someone to buy so that they can take it home and so that they can pay their bills. And there is zero wrong with that. And I did it for years. Uh, But there was always, you know, just because you make objects doesn't mean you can't make art or that that's void in you or that you're singled out as an object maker. It just means that, you need to be able to tell the difference between art and an object, something that is soulless and lifeless and just represents a dollar. Um, somebody else might think it represents Wisconsin or Idaho or Colorado or wherever you're from. It's just a little piece for them guys to take it home. But for you, it's just a thing. You just bang it out. It's a, it's a form. You know, it's, there's really, that's it. Um, and it makes money. And so that's cool. Um, but it's, to me, art, I art, I don't know, art has to make me move. It has to move me, you know, it ha- you know, there's different types of art, you know, we can go on and on and on, but long and short of it is, uh, making an item, making a thing, um, you know, if I showed you two examples of even my own work where I didn't capture an essence of anything. I didn't, you know, there wasn't much movement, if any, it was just a thing with dead eyes and, or maybe no eyes, maybe just a couple hash marks, you know, or whatever, just, and it's just really hokey looking, or maybe just, but hokey, I guess is a art form. I don't know. Um, You know, (laughs) folk art is considered art, I guess. So, I mean, if you break it down to different tiers, I'm sure it falls under the category of art. But in my basic mentality, um, one would know art when one sees art instead of just defending their own craft or whatever and saying they're artists or they are an art, they they can do art. Well, that's great. I think everybody, anybody can do it. It's just at what level do we start saying, okay, I'm moved by that. Something. I look at that and it, and it moves me. And I, to me, if it can do that in any way, if it makes you mad or makes you happy or makes you sad, or just makes you say, wow, you know, to me, that person left a part of themselves in there. You know, there's a spirit that you can put into your work and it's undeniable when somebody sees it, by God, they, that's art. And, and, and if you can leave that fingerprint, Holy cow, you know, that's, that's, that's why we do what we do. You know, some people do it as a therapy yeah. just so they can get through their day or just so they can pay a bill but at the end of the day, I think all of those guys and gals can can do beautiful things, and it might not even be with a chainsaw. It could be with pen and ink, or um, I've seen some some good carvers out there that do amazing paintings. I've seen great carvers out there do wonderful other works and music and things like that. You know, so maybe the whole ball of wax is what's moving maybe you're moved by the artist and not necessarily the art you know but technically the art at the end of the day it needs to be in my in my opinion it needs to be something that if you're going to do it you know i've been doing this a while now so if i'm going to do it i'm going to do it hard you know i i'm not going to just do something with uh you know very little steam it's it's not worth it i don't want to i don't do mm-hmm. things for a couple hundred dollars ever not ever not saying that i i won't sometimes i'll do things for fun because it's a challenge and maybe i just want to get away from all the head scratching and you know <laughs> It, it, and just be free, and just do something for fun. It's and and not go too crazy with it or whatever. But it doesn't happen very often because I find my bliss in the details. Yeah. That's just the way I do things.
0: Sure. And there's almost there's almost no one way to get your soul or evoke that emotion in a piece like there's no set way to do it. Everybody kind of has to figure it out for themselves.
1: Yeah. It's a process. And I always, always talk to my customers um, in depth and not just about the work that I'm about to do, but I want to see where their psychological, you know, where where we come together. Uh, I want to see what emotion they have, See if I can get hooked up with some kind of a link between what their emotional my their emotional content and my and my artistic content can somehow be have continuity and um, mm-hmm. that's where you find that next level stuff you know where that when it moves them, you know. When was the last time you saw a great piece, but it just didn't make sense to you? But it was just, it was cool. You know, it's just well executed, beautiful carving, but it just didn't, nothing, you know, nothing made sense. It didn't come together on, mm-hmm. on how it was placed. You know, I see a lot of, and I'd have to do it myself occasionally. A customer wants you to do something and it's just like, oh, <laughs> Okay. Mm-hmm. Can, but can I at least have a little say-so on where how these things are placed? Because if I don't, it could be ending up looking like a cluster. And, yeah. you know, I see a lot of them. I see a lot of them, and, and they're just well-executed, beautiful carvings. But it's just, there's no, to me, it's just either too busy or too this or too that. And I've, I've been guilty of that myself many times. Um. Boy, another one of those. Oh, geez, you know, imagine that. Oh, Jeff Moore carved another bear. Woo! you know, <laughs> imagine that. Boy, he really reached on that one. Well, I carved them, and I'm sure I don't really have to defend myself, but I will a little bit because, you know, you make a career out of something, and then people get inspired by it, and they want them, and so you owe it to yourself and you owe it to the customer to – even though I'm carving a bear, I don't want to carve a bear per se. I want to carve the best bear for, that I can do. And every time I do one, you know, maybe I'm working on the eyes and the pitch of the head, the angles, the muscularity and the face with the fur. How does that work out? You know, the paws, I'm, you know. And so every time I do one, I go, okay, well, I got this pretty good. Now, now the next time I'm going to do one, I'm going to work on the back how does the fur come around? Is there fat folds? Is there, you know, how does the fur fall? Does it fall or does it curve? You know, and I'm working on that. And then the next time I do one, I might just be interested in how the nose is or how the mouth looks or how the ears set back. Um, or, and I, and you can see it on some, I nail some things and some things are a little goofy, but overall it looks great. You know um and when i fall in love with my pieces i know i'm on the right track and i got nothing to be ashamed of you know and you know i sit on them long enough they should look decent but um i just i don't know i mean i can carve a bear quickly and it looks good but it's because i've carved a million of them you know if you don't mm-hmm. have a very good idea i think um you and Steven touched on this is if you don't have an idea of how something actually looks and you've studied it and gone over it and over it and over it, then it's very difficult for you to carve it accurately at a high speed. You know what I mean? It's just, Mm -hmm. there's an archery term and I'm going to go back to that. And it's, uh, it goes back to when we first started putting out these big, super fast bows, you know, shooting 350 feet per second and, and uh, people were bringing them in there, shooting them at 70 pounds. And it's like, oh, my gosh. And a buddy of mine <laughs> said, you know, the faster the bow, um, something, had something like the faster the bow, the, f- the faster you miss or something like that had something to do with it because a, a faster bow isn't necessarily a forgiving bow. And, uh, you know, so right. with that. You know, with speed, you know, that's why I always used to say speed kills. Well, there's there's a time and a place for it. And I think it's like an avant-garde style of carving that, you know, if you can fly through it, you don't have time to think about it. Your subconscious kind of jumps in there and takes over. And if you can free yourself, that's, that's what I believe speed carving's most potent thing is. Um, I think it's just like forcing yourself to do a quick sketch you have a vague memory of what a bear looks like you don't know all the exact details but believe it or not your subconscious mind will help you fill in the blanks Um, but the more you study them and the more familiar you become until you come anally familiar with them and you decide to kick it up five or six gears and fly you're going to come up with a much more uh, uh, accurate or, you know, potent version of a bear than somebody who just, you know, only carves them fast. Never really gave it the time of day, and they're just going to look at you like you're a freak because you did something that. How did you do all that? You know, like when you look at some of these big name carvings. And carvers, they can move to wood so fast. And that's all they do. And they're sharks. You know, you, you go swimming with them, you're in the water with the sharks. And uh, I'm more like a manatee.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I like the shallow, warm water. Just leave me alone. Please don't run over me with your boat, you know. I'm just going to kind of hang out here. Oh, yeah, that's me. I'm a manatee, like this big slug big slug with fat face that just kind of hangs out under the warm shallow water you know and that's that's where I like to be that's where my business is <laughs> but um, those guys are just out there they can move so much wood I'm not even gonna name names to, I think everybody knows somebody that can just wop wop just crazy yes and you know even... for me there's a oh sorry go ahead
0: I can't even remember who said it to me but somebody was talking about um, you know, being at a competition and just like working their butt off and just being like spent and working so hard and then turning around and, and there's a carver that's also in the competition that's just like leaning against a fence post, eating an ice cream cone, and he's done. <laughs> you know? and yep. You're
1: going, how yes. the
0: hell did he do that?
1: <laughs> yes. It's because I think after years of doing it, figuring out their tools, figuring out their strengths and their weaknesses – and also patterns
0: mm-hmm.
1: a lot of those guys believe it or not they can make, they can do they've done patterns enough where they can manipulate them and they just keep putting the same different pieces together in a different way and there you go you they they're super familiar with their with their uh, subject matter mhm Most of the time. Um, Or they rely on style alone. And as long as they have that skill to move wood, you know, if you start off competing, you learn how to compete. It's just like in the archery world, you know. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't don't practice until you hit. You have to – if you're going to compete, you have to practice until you can't miss. There's a difference. And it's like they're competing to win, whereas most people – train to compete those people's you know the the hierarchy people they they train to win and there's a big mental difference Mm -hmm. because they've seen themselves on the podium before they got there they've seen themselves shaking the hand and taking the trophy they've they've mentally done it before they go whereas if you're just training to compete You're just trying to shoot your average in a competition setting with all the nerves and stress and everyone watching. These people don't think about that.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. You see what I'm saying? And so, you know, there's there's something to be said for those, you know. Those guys are like, when you go to like Chetwin or Husky Cup, that's like NASCAR for carvers. You know, everyone's got a sponsor. They're all sponsored. Most of them are anyway, and you know, at least they are while they're there. And they're bringing out the best and the brightest and the fastest and the most talented um, in their arena. Mm-hmm. And they all go head to head. It's very much like you know, and it's it, it's a it's a it's a long drawn out battle. But the lines aren't always clear on who wins. I mean, it's art is such a you know tricky thing just because somebody won doesn't mean they had the best piece you know and that's that's just goes across the board which is why you know I was so disgruntled with a lot of judging over the years I'd see competitions I'm like man I wouldn't have, I wouldn't you know some that guy won I would he did a great piece but I wouldn't say that he won and so and then I've only competed twice and both times you know Everybody has their own opinion on who won, who didn't. And the best mm-hmm. thing I've ever heard, Bob King said it very eloquently and hilariously one time. He said, "A carving competition is like a pretty baby contest. At the end, you're going to have a lot of pissed off mommies." And I just cracked up. I <laughs> thought that was brilliant. And that basically is it. You know, you you know, you put your time in, your baby's up there and they didn't pick your baby. Oh my God. And you know, and that's wow. -hmm. (laughs)
0: You
1: know, uh, you, you can have, you got to have a huge, I guess you can have a huge ego and humility at the same time. So if you have a, you got to have a big enough ego to put yourself in a position to win over and over and, you know, always be on that thing. But then you have to have humility at the end of the game so that if you do lose, you know, it's basically called a thick skin, whatever next, you know, that's the next what's next. Oh, we're going over here. Okay. Let's do this. And you don't get attached to the pieces. You're just carving and you put together a couple ideas. If they work, they work. If they don't, they don't. But honestly, that never worked for me. I I've been very, I'm more particular and I get, you know, I'm emotionally attached to my work and it shows because you can see it in the work. uh, Hopefully. Mm -hmm. And, you know, most people can see it. Some people, you know, whatever. It's just a bear, but some people get really, they can look at it and feel something from it. And that's, that's what I'm after. Um, And it's not saying you can't do it in a speed situation because you sure as heck can. It's been done over and over, but I just, my perspective is mine. It's not yours. It's not the next guy's. It just doesn't work for me. Um, I, I love the competition setting. I love competing. I think, I don't know. It's just, it's just one of those things that why does a man have to compete constantly? It's just competition. It does bring the best out in you, but some people aren't built the way other people are. They, they feel stress re- in a real way. Um, and it's just not conducive to that kind of person. I mean, he might have all the tools and if he did it all the time, he might be great at it, but it's just too stressful. Um, and he doesn't need that or she doesn't need that, you know? And so they have to just kind of draw, they have to know themselves. They got to look at that popcorn string and say, is this for me? No. Or is this for me? Hell yeah, I'm going to do it. Um, I want to yeah. be world champ one day, you know, and that, that's something to strive for And that. That's what's, cool for that person but um I needed to try it. But afterwards uh, I I I went to the US Open because it was shortly after the Alaska the last Alaska Cup. Um I went to the US Open just for giggles to see Hikaru and all the guys. And um it was so cool. And I thought, you know what, I want to be a part of this. I don't necessarily want to carve but it, I think it would be cool to be a part of it. And then I talked to Jamie and he's like, man, if you want to come and carve or you want to be a guest carver, you want to be a judge. He goes, what do you want to do? You can do whatever you want. I said, well, okay. I maybe, maybe I'll just uh, judge just to see what it's like on that. Oh, you know, the other end of the spectrum. So I did yeah. and I enjoyed the heck out of it. And and I feel for the judges. But I think if you have a judge in there who knows what the heck is going on, who isn't egomaniacal, who is someone who isn't you know completely ignorant of what these guys are trying to accomplish, um, and the time frame—I mean, it, it, you you got to have somebody that knows what the heck's going on and has some sort of artistic background. Because if you just have, you know, I don't know, I've been, I've been, uh, I've been looking at contests forever and my, the way I ended up in a lot of contests, um, you know, judging them for myself on, from the computer or whatever, I'd say, well, this guy, I don't know, this is, you know, and I'd come up with a different winner every time, seems like. Yeah. But, uh. Judging the U.S. Open was an eye-opener, and I got to work with some really good people there and smart people that have been in the business a long time.
0: Yeah.
1: And it's and it's just funny because you go in there, and you're just exhilarated to be there, and then all of a sudden you have to think. And you're like, oh, I don't want to think. But you have <laughs> to. You have to. Okay, so you want me to not think like I normally think? It's like, yes, I want you to think differently.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. So now, just like archery and learning to shoot a hinge, this is the next thing for me, I think. I think I'd want to find that calm spot in my brain where I can look at everything objectively. Um, I don't know. Or subjectively, however you want to put it. I guess either way works. But I think if you look at all the different artists, and you might have your favorite, but and you might think that their pieces are strong. But when you go to score them and you look at the criteria, you're like, oh crap. This is my favorite piece, but I can't score it the way I want to because the criteria is is you know, they, they're just their style it doesn't maybe reflect what the criteria wants to see, but it's still spot on. You know, so there's like different things in play that are just so disturbing to me. And I got to get my mind around it. The only way to get my mind around it is to do it. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. Yeah, judging judging is interesting. We could probably talk about judging for several hours, just that.
1: <laughs> oh, God. Yes. and But hopefully, hopefully... You know, if you have a, a body of work and a, and a somewhat of a reputation that is respectable, hopefully the the carvers that compete will accept your thing, your your not judgment because I I'm, I'm not you know, even though you're judging right. I hate that term. Um because I don't like to be judged. I think art is what it is, just like people are what they are. You accept the good, the bad and the ugly if you want them in your life. If you don't, you just move on and you know. And hopefully you can get the positive out of it before you bash them. You know, I don't I just think there's so much negativity in this world that I art is the a beautiful thing and it and it doesn't need to be criticized or, you know, I I always, when I'm on Facebook, I always laugh, kind of chuckle to myself. Whoa. When people put on a picture or something, they say, oh, go ahead and tear (laughs) into it. You know, I don't care. And I'm thinking, yeah, you do. That's just such a, it's almost like a passive aggression type thing that they're like, go ahead. They almost want to find out who they want to not like. (laughs) like you said that about my carving oh you jerk (laughs) you know and it's like oh but then you come across and say oh thanks for the compliment or thanks for the when really uh, I think when we do something and it doesn't look right or whatever we know what the problem is a lot of us you know like if you do a bear and the ears are too big or the nose is too small, or the eyes are too big or too small. After it's done, you can look at it and go, oh, crap. Do I really want to fix this?
0: Right, or can uh, I fix
1: it? Do I really want to? <laughs> yeah, or can I, or should I? Am I going to be frowned upon if I change something? Oh, you didn't, you know. Um, so... You already know what's wrong, and somebody telling you what's wrong isn't going to fix it. you know you almost have to be your biggest you know critique artist or whatever your the person that critiques you um, comes the best person comes from inside because that's the hardest one to take because you did when you especially when you know what you did, you're just kind of checking to check see if anybody else caught mm-hmm. it. And then, if someone asks me, I'll say, "You know, you did a great job here, here, and here." Um, but, like any good instructor, you need—if you pull a brick out of the wall, you'd best put one back in its place. Otherwise, you're gonna—you're gonna crumble the foundation of whoever you're speaking with, mm-hmm. whoever you're critiquing. So, like, if you. If you remove something, you have to put it back. If you say, "Well, you know what? If I, you know, in the future, you might want to try making the ears, maybe set them back and and use that same angle to take go along the cheek into the blah blah," you know, you can go and then just say, "But you did an awesome job on these eyes. You gotta, you know what I mean? You gotta, or the furring is amazing, or you did great coloration. You have to. If you're going to pull something away, you need." It, You need to put it something
0: back. You know, we do that with with young students in art class. We do like a sandwich a sandwich critique where they have to do two good things with one, you know, fix it thing in the middle. (laughs) They have to do compliment, criticism, compliment.
1: (laughs) Yes. But criticism doesn't mean to criticize, it means to bring forth your a gentle opinion of something that could be improved upon without being a a jerk about it. Yeah. You know, like I've seen people come across and just brutalize somebody's work.
0: Yeah, at school we you know, call it like constructive criticism. criticism. It's got to be constructive. It can't just be tear down.
1: Yeah, but criticism to me is. The word criticize yeah that's where it comes from. you criticize somebody I don't want to be criticized. I would say critiqued is a is a a good positive I don't know because it's art it's like people like I said before you know um, you if you leave all it you know like that you brought that up before where you know putting yourself into it and when an artist puts himself into it he he leaves he opens up this thing inside of himself or herself and he and makes it vulner, makes himself vulnerable for the moment that he's working and so a part of him or her is in there and if something gets skipped along the way maybe a hand's a little too small or you know whatever for to match everything else the critique will allow you to say this is beautiful I see this, this person showed himself. However, the hand doesn't match, you know, this or that, or the foot is in the weird position, or, you know, if he would have just spent a little more time on the wings or on the, the stump, or maybe he should have put a rat, you know, there's something missing here from the top to the bottom. There's a big gap between those two things, and you lose. So those are, that's a critique. Mm-hmm. Um, unless you're talking to that person individually and saying, Hey, this is, this is why I say this. And and then that's a critique when you can do that to the person he's listening to you or she's listening to you and you can break it down to that person. This is what, this is what I think should, you know, you should focus on next time. You know, this is beautiful. You did a great job here, but the, there's a gap. And, and next time when you're doing this, try to, Work something in the middle or, you know, because it's it's a super strong piece and it looks beautiful and you should do well in auction. But we don't we can't do that as judges because nobody asks us. And, you know, once in a while, somebody will come up and ask, but they're almost defensive in a way. So mm-hmm. what, what was the problem? What do you, you know, you know, it's like, well. You don't want to hear. You know what the problem was. Why are you asking me? You know, mm-hmm. it's what you feel like saying, but you can't because you're a judge and you just say, I'm sorry. But it wasn't just mine. I, you know, across the board, it's it's all of us that are responsible for
0: right. winners no and losers. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, the the word critique, like, say, if you were to do a piece and you ask for a critique, not construction constructive criticism.
0: Uh, if you said hey
1: would you mind critiquing this piece for me and then I would just sit down and we would have a great discussion and you would leave hopefully better for it and I would leave better for it because when I give you a critique and it's positive both of us subconsciously are hearing positive messages coming out so I'm going to do this one more time It's it's an archery metaphor if you are walking in to shoot a tournament, and you got your bow, and you're everybody's shooting against the line, and every the, the last final buzzer goes, and you see a buddy, and he he's huffing out the door, you're like, "Hey, buddy, how'd you shoot?" And he's like, "Man, I, that sucked. <laughs> you know, I can't. I, man, this is, my bow is this, my you know." And he's just, ugh. You say, "Well, okay." And he and he turns around to you and says, "Good luck." Now, like sub- subconsciously, even consciously at the point, you're, you're like, oh, man, what a downer. Mm-hmm. And so when you go in there, you, you have this in your head, and it's hard to shake. Because negative things, as human beings, we tend to pick out the, not the hundred arrows we put in there, but the one we missed. And so this is that one that we missed, This is, and we didn't even miss it yet. This is just Mm -hmm. negative feedback, and that's why feedback on on social media is so critical for you to, like, fish out all the crap and make your life free of that because it, you know, same with the media, you know, the news media and all this stuff about presidents and Mm -hmm. who's doing what, and it's like, oh, my gosh, let's just tone this stuff back so I can be as positive as I can, without being Mm -hmm. completely ignorant, obviously, but... Um, so when you sit down with somebody and you want to give them a critique, just keep that lesson in mind, because if you walk into that shoot and somebody comes up and they are stoked, they are giggling like a girl, a little school girl about how great they shot and they can't wait to go, you know, you know, and they're excited because of their chances of winning. And, you know, they're just now that is a different outcome completely on the same person when they step up to shoot they have all of that so when you critique somebody it's that's how it is you know what i mean mm-hmm. um and that's how it should be you, you're, you're trying to give them something that they can walk away so that when they create the next piece Like you're the one that just shot, so you are coming into this situation. You could either make this person's day, and by helping them, or just by, you know, yeah, maybe the guy says, "I struggled a little bit in the beginning, but I finished really strong. I'm really happy with that." Okay, so now you're saying I I I can persevere just like this guy did if I have to. You know, that's the way I want to be. I want to do that. So when you're critiquing somebody, you're Encompassing the whole or critiquing their work, not the person. (laughs) Uh, Mm -hmm. uh, You can put all that in perspective, you know, and let them know that, you know, exactly what the piece means to you first, you know, and then move on from there. Um, Hopefully, not destroying, you know, criticizing them or criticizing their work is. To me, that's just counterproductive.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, I think that's all. That's all the questions that I had for you, Jeff. <laughs> is there anything that we didn't cover? Or?
1: Oh, there's so much we didn't cover. Yeah,
0: that's true. We can't cover everything, can we?
1: No, but we're we're. I I, I just really enjoy this uh, this format. I think uh, what you're doing is is fantastic and i'd love to hear other people's stories and other people's uh you know angles on this on this same subject you know
0: yeah definitely i agree i'm gonna try to get some more interviews lined up here
1: i think it'll be great i think what you're doing is awesome it's kind of groundbreaking really i mean i haven't really there's a couple other people i've seen that have podcasts but it it's more about themselves it's it's not about others which is really
0: yeah no cool. i def- I wanted to do this but i'm like i want i want it to be about people that are more qualified than me <laughs> ah,
1: well that's that's a, <laughs> a matter of opinion
0: <laughs> um
1: yeah but i think i think what you're doing is awesome and uh i encourage anybody else out there to to just uh let you come in and, and, uh, you know, pick their brain. I,
0: I think it's pretty painless. I've been on the other end too, um, with art teacher podcasts. So I've been in your shoes and it, it's, it's pretty painless. It's fun.
1: <laughs> Actually, it's, in, it's really invigorating. Cause then you can almost put yourself in a, you know, we're like, you can do like what I said about being in the archery range and talking about uh how you did uh-huh and looking at your whole career and your life saying you know what i did pretty good maybe sure. i'm not you know
0: yeah it's very and reflective.
1: hopefully yeah very very reflective in a positive way yeah. you know
0: well good well it's been great talking with you jeff
1: my pleasure molly
0: hopefully we'll see you again soon
1: yeah we will
0: So it was great to talk with Jeff today and get a little bit of his insight into the business and carving in general. Again, his website is northwoodscarver.com. You can also find Jeff more on Facebook if you want to check out some more of his stuff. Um, There's some great conversations going on too. Jeff started the Facebook group Carver's Cambium. So if you want to join the Carver's Cambium group, it's a little bit different group. You don't usually post pictures of your finished carvings, but rather talk about carving. Uh, And Jeff also puts on workshops there in Wisconsin. And so if you're interested in a carving workshop at all, you can contact Jeff on Facebook. And he also has a group on Facebook called Carver's Cambium Workshop Events. So you could check that out and see what's going on there. So wherever you are out there, Whether you're surrounded with carving brothers and sisters, or you're the only one, I hope that you learned something here today and that you feel a little bit more connected to the carving world. And whatever you do, be sure to keep growing and keep learning. And if you guys liked this podcast, please leave us a review and share it with friends. Until next time.